You are listening to the Compliance Conversations podcast by Healthicity. If you work in the healthcare industry, you know how crucial compliance is to your bottom line, your reputation, and the success of your organization as a whole. If this is your first time listening, welcome. A transcript of every Compliance Conversations episode can be found at www.healthicity.com resources, along with a ton of other thought leadership materials. You can add us to your RSS feed and iTunes, or follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Now, let's get on with the show. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Compliance Conversations. I'm CJ Wolf, Healthicity's Senior Compliance Executive. And today we're talking with Chad Peterson, who is a senior consultant with Intermountain Healthcare in their professional coding and reimbursement group. It's an area, this is a department I actually used to work for when I first started many years ago in, in kind of coding and compliance when I left a medical career and, and uh, got started in this. So I'm really grateful for your time, Chad. I'm grateful to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, and Chad, maybe we'll just start with just a brief introduction, if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of how you got into, we're going to be talking about E&M coding today and how you got into that and what special credentials or certifications you have in that area. Yeah, I got interested in um, the E&M or the, the evaluation and management service stuff because it was needed in our department. There wasn't really a, a certified person or anybody that really had a, a good understanding. I mean, we had some good concepts and so... I kind of took it upon myself and was asked by my director to to really make that kind of my niche. And so I went and I, I sought out kind of the best certification, and it was the Certified Evaluation Management Coder offered by the AEPC. So I did that and got my CEMC. Um, I have my CPC, and I've been doing – I've been here with Intermountain about 11 years. All the wow. way from being a billing office manager, had a little stint with Select Health and got yeah. the insurance side of that, okay. and then came back uh, – I say come back, but came back to the Intermountain side and – I've been doing coding for the last five plus years. So awesome, and and part of your duties are to go out and educate physicians and and other maybe mid level providers or advanced practice providers, however you term them, um, and teaching them about E and M, right? Yeah, yep. Um, and even with an added focus right now of teaching other ancillary staff about it who have who have uh, who try to help the physicians with their E and M coding. Uh, okay, we learn that. Uh, Everyone needs to learn a little bit more about that. So, yeah, that's the general. So, like concept. medical assistants that might be mm-hmm. taking chief complaints, even. Is that yep. what you're talking about? Okay. Yep. Um, even billing people that are doing the billing right now, we're helping with them. Charge entry people just to help with them okay. to help identify it. So, everyone that has something to do with it, we try to talk to. Cool. And educate. Well, thanks for, for being here again. And um, we, we have lots of things to talk about, and, you know, um, we can kind of let it go where we want it to go. But um, I'll let you start. It, just kind of keep it in mind that we will have some folks on the on some of our listeners who do have expertise in coding. But we have a lot of folks who are compliance officers. They know that coding's can be a compliance risk. And so some of them uh, might just need a kind of a basic understanding of, of where these codes came from. When we talk about E&M. I already jumped into that abbreviation without saying it's evaluation and management services. And those are kind of the, the bread and butter. It's the non-procedural stuff. It's you go in and you tell your doctor you have a cough and they ask you how long and what helped and what's hurting it and, and all of that kind of history and physical exam and then decision making, um, which is non-procedural, but which is work. And that gets 
put down in the medical record and then coded as an evaluation and management code. And there are different guidelines for Medicare. And, and there's we refer to the 95 or 97 guidelines referring to 1995 or 1997. Is that a good place for us to start a little bit about yes. talking about E&M? And could you explain a little bit about those? Yeah, absolutely. That's a good uh, intro into that is um, we talk about these evaluation and management service. Well, where did they happen? When I go out and I educate, I really like to give a, a history of of where they came from, um, you know, we're being asked to do uh, to code within these guidelines. But where right. do they come from? Right. Why do we have them? What's the intent of them? And so, I really like to teach about where they came from, why we have them. And um, you know, before 1992, they didn't. We didn't have really any guidelines. Providers, if you saw a provider, they submitted and yeah. based on time or whatever the metrics were used. And so, it was a really interesting uh, scenario. And so, then the Office of Management Budget (OMB). They said, "Listen, we need we need to have a better way for you to um, quantify and qualify the amount of work that's going into, or what a physician is putting into that." Okay. So that's where we get. So in between ninety two to ninety four, AMA CMS is uh, coming up with these different guidelines, and in nineteen ninety five, they publish these first guidelines. That's where we get those okay. nineteen ninety five DGs or document guidelines, and they were they're fairly specific to a point. Um, but then it left a lot of room for uh, interpretation. Right. And then it also left a lot of room for uh, some specialty providers were upset. Right. And they, because, well, it, it's... Yeah, I'm an ophthalmologist yeah. and I don't listen to the heart necessarily. Right. I mean, you, you can and should in some circumstances, but in general. And so what we do good or what the health community, the healthcare community does really well is we complain about things. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and so that's what kind of happened is... is uh, they started complaining. They thought that it wasn't a fair process. And so they said, give us something different. Okay. So then we get these 1997 guidelines. So two years later, they published these uh, different guidelines. And if you've looked at the and compared 95 to 97, the 97 are extremely specific. Right. I mean, down to every granular detail of how you can get. Basically, the examination was the biggest portion of that. So anyway, right. the reason why we talk about that is there's so many people that say, oh, I, I audit based on a 95 guideline or a 97. And and, but they're meshing these, they're, they're these hybrid systems. And so when I go in and I teach about the differences of them, um, it really helps their uh, level of coding because now they understand, oh, oh, I was combining, oh, I was doing this. Yeah, so um, when somebody's choosing a code, it's you, you, you pick one set or the other and you're allowed to do that, but mm -hmm. you have to live in the space you pick. Right. Medicare was very uh, specific. It said what to, what's ever most advantageous for the provider, you can use if it's a specialty provider. So whatever yields the greatest, you can use that as long as you work within the confines of each rule. And for that, that given encounter. So I right. could at my 8 a.m. appointment, I could use the 95 guidelines and my 10 a.m. appointment, I could use the 97. Correct. Yep. Okay. Yep. And so, but we have these combining, the confusion comes with this combining of all of the rules. Right. And so we, we run into a lot of that confusion. And, and to add to the confusion, you know, we have our, our different carriers, all of our Macs. Right. Um, who all, if you look at their guidelines, they're all different. Some say you can combine. Um, okay. Some say you can't combine. And so, so it even adds to the conversation or the... So what do you do if your Mac is saying you can combine? Can you go with that? Because if I'm a doc... And I'm gonna and I learn the rules. I'm gonna I'm gonna pull that card out and say, hey, our own Mac says we can combine. Right. What what we've tried to do as a healthcare is we're pretty conservative. But the doc, if you go back and you really look at the documentation guidelines and you understand its its origin of and its intent, mm -hmm. it's pretty self-explanatory. Not self-explanatory, but 
it walks you in the direction that you should probably be coding. You know what I mean? Even sure. though we have these other interpretation, because they're, they're not statutes, so they're guidelines that right. say you should. Right. Um, and so we, we audit based on the guidelines as true to the intent as possible. Okay. Yes, we have discussions. Yes, we have to make calls at times of what we believe yeah, in interpretation. Exactly. But that's what's awesome about our department, too, is we have some really highly educated people, and we can bounce those. Yeah. But to answer your question about the max, I mean, we do take that into consideration okay. of what are they saying, because obviously they're going to be auditing us. Exactly. So we do take that into consideration. But Okay. Well, good. So let's break down the the E&M's, the E&M encounters a little bit, and can you talk to us a little bit about the different components that are in there and what a compliance officer or an auditor should look for as kind of common mistakes in those areas. The, the common mistakes that I teach on right now, if we'll take it piece by piece within the history is um, there was this, uh, in 2013, they came out with the status of three chronic conditions. So that was right. an addition to the already set guidelines for that. And so that's been kind of um, an interesting thing of, well, when do I get just regular HPI elements or can I use the status of three chronic conditions? And so we've been teaching that quite a bit of, hey, this is something to help your physician. Right. Instead of, especially for these ongoing chronic yeah, conditions. Yeah, so like if, if I'm an internist and I'm seeing, you know, elderly patient after elderly patient and they all have hypertension, diabetes mm-hmm. and high cholesterol and I'm monitoring like their labs for that. I don't need to retake the history that this started in 1972. Right. It's obviously clearly established in the medical record. So that's what you mean by the three chronic conditions. Exactly, because to get an interval history from the last visit to this visit of new elements right. is extremely difficult. Right. But to give the status of these chronic conditions from the last time to this time is more advantageous for the provider. Gotcha. I like the addition, um, but, but it's interesting to teach that some haven't even heard of that ah, provision okay. or whatever. So um, I teach on that quite a bit, and okay. physicians like that. Yeah, exactly. And, and so, you know, like an internist, I think most docs who are in primary care probably get that. Yeah. And that's probably more advantageous for docs in primary care as opposed to, you know, a trauma surgeon. You're not right. going to be looking at chronic conditions typically. Has its place. I mean, acute new uh, illnesses or injuries are really easy to get HPI elements, exactly. or, whereas the chronic conditions, it's better to, for the status. And so I teach that to help coders, physicians understand that it's it's easier, or not easier, but there's right. better rules for you for the conditions. Can you use three chronic conditions in both the 95 and 97 guidelines, yep. or is it just one of them? No, it, it, it's open. It's opened up for both of them. Okay. You can use you can use. And you said that was in 2013? Or? It was 2013. And was that a CMS clarification or something, or what? I don't know necessarily if it was a clarification, but just an addendum or an addition to, okay. hey, you can do this, or you can get these probably from the healthcare community showing okay. uh, concern or interest like we do of, hey. Because I, I remember back in the day, and I sound like an old guy now, but um, the three chronic conditions is something that we utilized um, in certain cases. I just couldn't remember. Um, it's been a while since I was in the weeds on, on E&M, so that's kind of why I was asking that. So let me ask you if, if we could skip the his, the physical exam for a second and kind of jump down to medical decision making. I was with I was at a conference last week, and Dr. Julie uh, Tatesman, who is the chief medical officer for the OIG. Are you familiar with her? Have you heard her name? OIG, no. I mean, yes, not but, her. Okay, so she, yeah. she yeah. So she's she's their chief medical officer. She's 
both an attorney and a, and a physician. And she was speaking and we were talking specifically about medical decision making. And somebody in the audience asked, okay, you know, you get these um, electronic medical records and you get these tools, even if it's not an EMR, where doctors are getting more and more trained, so to speak, to make sure they're, they're hitting all the, the items on the list. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's medically necessary to do all of that. So in other words, you know, somebody could come in for a cough um, and I could, you know, do a full exam. I could do a rectal exam. I could do all sorts of things. But is it medically necessary for a cough? Now, there may be some cases where it is actually medically necessary. But how do you teach the difference between medical decision making, which is a component of E&M, and has kind of points and those sorts of things versus whether it's actually medically necessary, which is they sound similar, but they're completely different. They, they are. And this is this is the ultimately what um, giving the history of where we've been, where we're at and then where we're going. Mm-hmm. This is that that um, what is the difference between medical decision making and medical necessity and really the intent of of these documentation guidelines were to help capture the amount of work that goes into right. it, not necessarily focused on uh, medical necessity. And, and the reason why I say that is because it it's just capturing work, not necessarily the specific work that the provider needs to do for a specific problem. This right. is just measuring how much work can the provider get do. Right. And so what I like to teach when I do that is if you look at um, medical necessity as what's clinically required, the action required to diagnose something compared to the amount of work that he can do, right? It, it's different, right? And, and what we're seeing right now is all audits—not all audits, but the audits that we're seeing coming back from the government—are all being driven on um, medical necessity. Yes. Instead of just what components can the provider right. gather, right? And so one thing that I like to teach is um, a parallel or a story or something um, is: let's say you take your car in to get the oil changed. Mm-hmm. And really all you want is the oil changed. Right. But but the mechanic takes upon himself to change the wipers without asking yet. Right. Or to change the transmission. You know, the air filter needs to be changed. Mm-hmm. Right? I, I mean, he can do that, right? And he can make a strong argument of why you need that. But really the intent of what you came in for, or the complaint that you came in for, right. was just the oil change. And so that's that concept of providers may or may are doing more work than what is medically necessary for the chief complaint or the problem the provider right. is, is uh, the patient is complaining of. Yeah. And so it, it's hard and that's, yeah. it's a subjective Cause, cause, matter. Yeah. And there's not always a, a, a hard and fast rule because some people say, well, a headache should never be um, a level five. Well, I can give you two scenarios of a headache. Uh, doc, I have a headache. Okay. When does it start? Well, it always starts Monday morning when I start my drive to work. Uh, I never get them on the weekends, and I never get them when I'm on vacation. And they seem to go away after 5 o'clock when I get home. I mean, so this kind of headache is typically like a stress headache or or kind of versus, Doc, I have a headache. That's also a chief complaint. Okay, when did it start? It started this morning. Um, can you describe it? Is it all over or is it on one? Can you point to it? Yeah, it's just right here on my right temple. Okay, have you had any vision changes? Well, yeah, actually... My vision has started to change a little bit. Okay. Do you have any other conditions? So they then do a review of system. Oh, yeah. I, I have a lot of, um, I have arthritis uh, and those sorts of things. Well, those pieces, if you're not clinical, all of those things that I just said are 
are textbook symptoms of temporal arteritis, which is an inflammation of the temporal artery. They cause unilateral headache, and that patient can go blind if you don't put them on steroids right away. So when you get into medical decision-making, you have criteria such as kind of an acute illness that could lead to threat of life or limb or bodily injury and those sorts of things. So I share that because the chief complaint of headache can follow two completely different paths. And one might be completely appropriate to be a level five, and the other, it might be a level two or three or that sort of thing. Any thoughts kind of on on that or other examples that, that you've heard or yeah, no, that's a that. that's a great way to put that. So what I teach the physicians is um, paint the picture. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you have to, if, if the patient is sick and you're concerned and you're doing things that uh, look out of the norm. Right, but there's a valid medical reason. A, correct, and have that be supported by, that's why it's, it, tie your history to the examination. Yeah, exactly. Have your medical decision making. Make sure that you have a logical flowing process of why you're doing what you're doing. Exactly. Um, and then at the very end, paint that picture of what your impression was, which will be supported if you did it right. Yeah. By the other components of your history. All too often we see um, all of a sudden in the medical decision making or they're in their assessment and plan, they're diagnosing them with something that they didn't address yeah, in where the did history. That come they didn't from, address right? <laughs> in, or they don't support that in the in the examination. Exactly. And so it, with with the scrutiny of auditing and everything right now, um, all they request or what they request is the documentation. Right. You don't you don't get to sit face to face with them exactly. initially. So, so the, what's in your documentation that's going to help support the medical necessity of that? And it's the physician's responsibility to paint that picture exactly. and show that concern. Yeah, so like in my scenario, if I were the doc and I were, were dictating, you know, in my, his, in my assessment and plan, I would say, you know, given the patient's arth- arthritis history, given the, the new onset and the unilateral nature of the headache, I have concerns about temporal, temporal arteritis. Patient needs a biopsy of the temporal artery. I'm going to send them to a surgeon. I'm starting high-dose um, steroids today because the patient could lose their sight. So, I mean, you kind of need to paint that picture a little bit. It's always a balancing act, though. I get some docs who say, well, why should I have to explain, you know, four years of medical school in a, in a one pager for, for an auditor who's not going to understand it? So I get that argument a little bit. Like, I think there is a burden also on auditors to not assume that it wasn't medically necessary until you've asked some questions um, so I, I think it goes both ways. I think the docs need to paint the picture, but I also think auditors and coders need to elevate their game, so to speak, and learn some of those clinical things or remain silent. Don't mm-hmm. challenge the doctor that it wasn't medically necessary unless you've done all your homework. I, I completely agree. Well, one thing that we are, we're trying to elevate our game yeah. here at, with Intermountain, um, our director has been so great about allotting time every day, every week, every month to continue education clinically, right. not just coding specific. Right. So we have MDs coming in, other APCs. We have uh, other educators coming in to teach us. Yep, perfect. Um, we're going to uh, conferences. We're trying to do all of that. Yep. And a lot of us have some clinical backgrounds right. of either, like I worked on the ambulance, did the paramedic thing for several years, which helps add to the uh, validity yeah, or the some credibility. Of that credibility with right. some of the providers. But you, you hit another interesting point of, you you need to know some clinical right or or help elevate your game not to the level of a physician but if you're questioning it 
have a relationship with your providers right. where you can have that two-way communication. Right. And that's been huge with walk me through this. This is the same explanation that you're going to have to give if you're audited exactly. to, to justify why you did what you did. And if you can't, yeah. let's work on changing Well, that. And that brings up a great point. I, was, I gave a presentation last week at HealthCon, um, and it was on uh, kind of going deeper than, than the headline. And it was a specific doctor in Florida who was a dermatologist, um, and he was doing uh, some superficial uh, radiation of skin cancers in the office. Um, and this was a lawsuit that was brought um, as a whistleblower lawsuit. And what the government did was just what you said. They went and they found an expert in radiation oncology to combat the physician's way of treating. So when I get docs that ask me, well, what's, what's Medicare going to consider medically necessary? I say, well, generally speaking, and none of us know the temperament of a prosecutor. They might take different approaches. But generally speaking, you're going to be on trial in front of peers. So they're going to go find two or three certified, board-certified radiation oncologists in this example, and they're going to say, was what this doctor did medically necessary? And so though the coder doesn't always know that, and, and even as somebody like myself who's got medical training, I'm still not an expert in radiation oncology, but I'm smart enough to know if I'm going to challenge a doctor on medical necessity, I'm going to go find that resource that can tell me whether it actually was medically necessary or not. I don't know if, if your coders or if your auditors or you guys get into actually commenting on medical necessity or if you stick mainly with the medical decision-making components of the... We have, we have different tiers of consultants here. Um, some of us are, I don't want to say allowed, but are encouraged to have those higher-level conversations with some of the physicians about medical necessity. Gotcha. But we also do uh, blind peer reviews, too, with our kind of auditing process here. Gotcha. Uh, if we don't agree, we, we take it to our internal kind of coding. Oh, yeah, smart. Uh, kind of like a little panel. Or... It is a panel. And so we talk about it as a panel. Um, and then if it needs to be escalated to get some clinical expertise, we have uh, doctors that do that. And we learn so much from yeah, it. I exactly. mean, it's just so beneficial for everybody. So there's due process there for sure of of trying to make sure that because we don't want to call them liars or say that you're not doing exactly it. but we do need to say hey there's some guidelines out here that if exactly. you don't follow you can be in trouble well and i think that's why you need professionals like yourself and that's why i think this profession exists it's to walk that that line of and actually not walk a line but bring people together to kind of be the interpreter between here are the regulations and here's what you're faced with doctor and, and learning from that doctor, but then also teaching that doctor certain things. And um, I think only through that kind of collaborative way can you really get good compliant behavior over time. Because like you said, a lot of these, these um, lawsuits and settlements that we're seeing, they stem from medical necessity. And so okay. you're absolutely right. I mean, upcoding is another one where people, where the documentation just doesn't flat, it just flat out doesn't support uh, what you build, you build a level five and you didn't do, I mean, that's kind of a little bit easier, right? right. I mean, the, the formula or the guidelines, the check boxes aren't checked. Right. More or less. Yeah. That's the easier part of it. Yeah. yeah. Um, let me ask you in the last few minutes here, um, kind of what impact electronic medical records and kind of auto populating has had in, in your view. I, it reminds me of a story years ago when I took my son to an emergency room because he had fallen and we thought he broke his arm. He was young. He was like two. So I was in the exam room the entire time with my son. 
the doctor did his exam, did his review of systems, didn't ask very many questions. Then I got the bill. And because I was in the coding field, I requested the medical records. And his review of systems was complete. And I was in the room the whole time. So I know for a fact he didn't ask all those questions. Right. But he had some sort of auto-populator that did that so that he could get a higher level. I challenged it mainly on principle and eventually got him to see the light. But um, what are your thoughts on kind of these auto-population tools and what what warnings could you give people? It's a fun, hot topic right now because with all of the great uh, electronic that we have currently. A lot of physicians complain that I got into healthcare because I yeah. want to treat a patient, not to be a documentation specialist. Right. And so when when it's appropriately used to use hot text and macros and everything like that, absolutely, let's speed up their work, let's use that. Um, however, it, it's being audited and it's, right. it's a risk area because sometimes they can hurry and put it in and they really didn't do it. Right. And so we teach about that for copy and paste issues. Yes. Um, and so it's just having that conversation of with the physician of, did you really do it? And if you're putting it in your documentation, yeah. uh, be careful because you can get in trouble. And we audit, we, we audit on that too of, Hey, yeah. this is the same for every physician. Um, and so it, it is a hot topic of use them when they're appropriate, right. but make sure that yeah, and, and you're the final, you know, talking to the doctor, Doc, you're the final um, kind of quality check of when that note gets signed that you don't want to be saying, yeah, this patient is pregnant and it's a male patient. Because right. um, I've seen that in copy and paste type yep. of scenarios or, you know, the patient's chief complaint is headache and then in the review of systems it says no headache. And so it's like, well, which is it? Um, and you're kind of getting that carry forward or that copy and paste and that sort of thing. So you need to, if you're going to use technology, which I agree, I think you should use it to help get the work, that part of it done, but you have to be a quality checker too. Because people are going to rely on that medical record yep. um, to, to give that patient care in the future. Yeah, it's added um, more work sometimes of yeah. <laughs> than, than what it is to save. And so, but we look at it, we try to make sure that, are they using it appropriately? So. Right. We, yeah. we try. Physicians try. We're trying to speed up their time by still having to be medically necessary. It, it, it's it's a hard game to play. Yeah, it's a balancing act. And that's why I think professionals like you are out there um, because it's not black and white answers. And you need somebody that's intelligent and that knows the rules that can also talk to the doc. I think that's kind of the, the, the main message. Well, Chad, thank you so much for your thank time. You. Appreciate your expertise. And uh, thank you to all our listeners for listening to another episode of Compliance Conversations. Till next time.